Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're talking to Alex, founding partner of Chameleon, an early stage fund based in Silicon Valley, doing first checks between one and five million, primarily in the US and Europe, but can invest globally. Chameleon invests on the basis of a thesis revolving around product-led companies with technology differentiation and clear end-user flows that the team can test. Alex is an experienced investor and operational handler, having spent 15 years in telco and tech and six years as an angel and VC. Alex has also co-founded the Portuguese corporate venture builder studio, BrightPixel. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Alex, welcome to the European VC. It's great having you. How are you today? I'm really great. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a great fan of the podcast and congrats for, on what you're doing at European VC. Uh, thank you very much. We're big fans of you and that is why you are invited. And before we start, I always like to start with kind of the same question, which is how the hell did you end up in venture? Tell us more. Maybe I'll give you the long story and then move fastly to the you know the VC uh, question that he did. But uh so I was born in Portugal, but raised in the U.S. Got early contact to the you know computers early on when I was a kid. So ended up having two passions in my life. So one was computers, tech in general, and the other was numbers. And that's why I did my college degree back in Portugal again. I also had my first stab as an entrepreneur in my last year in college. So I got a little bit of you know of the bug, right? Being an entrepreneur, love for numbers, and passion for tech. So early on, I worked in the dot-com era in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So I felt in firsthand, you know, the dot-com boom and the bust as well. So great experience there. After that experience, I worked for the holding company of a telecom operator uh, and did a lot of M&A, corporate finance, for the first years between uh, Europe, U.S., and, and Africa in several deals. Then over time, I moved more into operating roles. I felt, you know, I had the urge of making the numbers happen and not controlling the numbers. I moved gradually to working in, in several uh, capacities and product development, so project management, business development, and moved around uh, quite a bit in, in several companies within the telecom operator. And that's how I ended up meeting, you know, entrepreneurs and, and startups in general. So I was at the time doing a lot of uh, partnerships with big tech, mainly, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Google. We were reselling a lot of their stuff to our own customer base. But uh, I started working with startups through an incubation program that I launched because I felt, you know, at least the dumb pipe of becoming a utility in the telecom world, at least we should sell cool stuff to our customer base. And that's how I started working side by side with entrepreneurs. I convinced the, uh, my company to also invest in funds that were investing at the time in, into startups as well. I wasn't happy with that. So I became a business angel with two friends. That's how I started. The hard way, I, I would say, romantically investing 
a little bit of your own money into founders that were starting to stop. And that's how I started the whole thing. In Europe or in the States? That was in Europe. I was managing projects between Europe and Brazil at the time. So I also got a good grasp of the Brazilian uh, startup world at the time. But uh, I created the Business Angel Boutique with my two friends that came more from the telco world in Europe, actually. And so that's how I started. And uh, after some years, I was also invited and got a great opportunity to jump into the VC world. So I was invited to be one of the first people hired to jumpstart a $250 million uh, investment vehicle for a CVC called Sonai Investment Management. They wanted to do tons of investment, especially in the growth stage, so ideally from Series B and above. But uh, right after I jumpstarted the effort and started building the investment teams, the first investment teams that we had at Sonai Investment Management, they said, you know, we also want to dabble into early stage. And that led to several discussions, and we ended up, co-founding. So I ended up co-founding BrightPixel with her help with uh, people that I knew from the tech scene. And so BrightPixel was born as a venture builder studio first, where we had a really cool pool of uh, developers, designers, senior people in-house helping, you know, founders launch their own stuff, you know, building out their MVPs and creating the companies from scratch. And we ended up launching uh, smaller VC funds dedicated to really early on opportunities to invest in startups, so pre-seed and early seed. And that's actually how I later started working with my two co-founders at Chameleon. So I, I met first Nuno. We invited him to be a part of our investment committee and uh, and also an independent advisor to us because he was doing really cool stuff in the Bay Area, he was dabbling into data to reach out more proactively to invest into startups over there. And so he started having really interesting results by reading you know signals out there in terms of traction retention and engagement and proactively reaching out to entrepreneurs and getting into rounds that typically a small fund like his wouldn't enter and that's how we started you know working a lot together before we deep dive into chameleon which we will i think you raised a lot of interesting topics that i'd love to pick your brains a bit on with the learnings that come for you and obviously you know i'm thinking of our audience you know mostly emerging managers listening and you said uh in the beginning of your intro or shortly after starting that back when you were in the telco company that you actually convinced them to do some um lp investing into venture funds I'd love to ask you to reflect back on that and, okay, what were the motivations and what is your assessment of that experience and also what it added to you as an emerging manager, even you might not know at that time, but you were an emerging manager. It was crucial for a telecom to have a more aggressive stance in terms of innovation. And the best way to have access to what was happening in the world was to actually invest in startups and learn with them about, you know, bleeding edge stuff that was happening a little bit around the world. I tried to develop several programs to that extent that were more into open innovation initiatives, opening up the whole group to working more closely with startups and other types of companies out there. And I thought that as a part of the open innovation strategy, they should also have a say as investors and take the full advantage of being also investors into startups and reaping, you know, the financial returns that they could achieve by doing so, right? I tried to convince them to invest directly into startups, but uh, I wasn't able to do that. So the best thing was to convince them to become uh, LPs into credible funds out there. 
actually money because most corporates are the other way around, right? <laughs> They're happy to do direct investments, but funds, nah, not so much. It's <laughs> funny that that's the experience that you've had. In Chameleon today, do you have corporates in your LP base? Yeah, they're a key element to the LP base. I think they're great partners to have because uh, they're for the long run and they really believe in what we're doing. And I think they, you know, they can be LPs in this fund and, and, and following funds if all goes well, right? Super curious if we can continue there a bit. And I know that we'll dive deeper on Chameleon and everything, but I'd love to hear your reflections on that because it's a double-edged sword always with corporate LPs. I'd love to hear what your thinking has been and where you have kind of set up the guardrails in terms of what are they allowed to, what aren't they allowed to, how do you use them, so on. I think, you know, first you have to understand their own motivations. Why do they want to have exposure to a fund and and what are they looking for beyond the financial return? And I think one thing that was key in our interactions with potential uh, corporates that looked at Chameleon was understanding what kind of uh, value add could be provided beyond giving them access to our fund and the financial exposure that they're going to get through it. And one key element was the whole strategy around data that we have, right? And working data as a key element of our value proposition. So they get access through a portal to data insights that might be relevant for their own strategy as investors in other stuff and uh, in their own corporate innovation strategy and and things that they're doing on their side. So they get access to relevant information through us. And I think that was a key element to what we did in catering their interest in in our fund and firm. But of course, you know, there are several things that you shouldn't do while catering their interest is allowing them to, you know, be a part of your investment committee. That's a no-no, right? They don't have any say in what we do as an investment on our side, right? They get overall information about markets and things that we're, you know, we're seeing as trends, but of course they don't get access to any primary data on companies, right, that we have access to. That's a no-no as well, right? So, you know, you have to define really well the boundaries and guarantee that they're totally aligned with that, right? Oftentimes you have this dichotomy of VC, who's the customers, is the DLPs or the founders, and, and that's a conversation that keeps on going. And what many VCs find is that they have to also innovate on the LP value prop that they have. And it's one thing that they do investments and make the money money multiply, but it's it's just as much about giving them a vantage point into the industry and into startup land. How much effort would you say that you guys are spending with your LPs on making sure that they're getting out of your fund what they're hoping to get? Quite a bit. And I think that's a lot related to three things that we're building with as a key elements of our value proposition. So on one side is the data approach that we have. So the fact that we're developing a tech stack and a portal and several data models and a lot of information that we then provide to them is a lot of effort and resources dedicated to that extent from our side. The other element to it is we've launched a program that we call Hashtag Ken, that is our advisory program, where you know we have uh, access to really key people around the world that are the main experts in several uh, verticals, there are C-level people in several key companies out there. And those people are also available for our LPs to interact with and engage with. And they see a lot of value in that as well. 
uh, and vice versa. You know, the, the kin members also see value in having those type of interactions with, yeah. with our LP base. And then the third element is our whole strategy is a global play in, into early stage investing. And so LPs that are, you know, from Asia or from Europe or from uh, the U.S. like to have that extra exposure to other parts of the world, right? And see a lot of value in better understanding what's happening in other spaces that they're not that aware of, right? I'd love to put you on the spot here, Alex, and ask you to kind of, you know, we've been talking about corporate LPs now, and I'd love to have you summarize, you know, learnings for emerging managers under the title, you know, raising from corporates. <laughs> How would you summarize that? Maybe I can do it raising in general and then uh, maybe <laughs> tweak it a little bit to, to the corporates. I think the first thing you have to crack the code in what's your key value proposition, right? What's your story? What makes you distinctive? Why are you different? Why are you special, right? Yeah. We took a lot of time in defining that, right? You have to really nail that because that's going to make the difference once you start talking with any potential LP. The second one is you have to define really well the type of LP you want and that you think are more available to hear you out as an emerging manager. And there are different types of corporates out there in terms of size, you know, in terms of uh, what they're trying to do out there in the market, but also other types of LPs, right? You know, high net worth individuals, family offices, fund of funds, several institutional players out there. For example, we had a clear decision of not, you know, reaching out proactively to fund the funds nor, you know, big institutional players. We just focused on some key corporates and a lot of, you know, high net worth individuals and family offices that we thought would be interested in, in having access to a VC like us, right? You know, with the global perspective in, into yeah. early stage, the data-driven model and all the rest, you know, our team and, and hashtag Ken as well, right? Convincing corporates, it's a long dance, right? It takes a lot of effort and uh, persistence. So I think the third element to fundraising is never give up. You know, it's really hard to know when you're going to have the tipping point. And sometimes it's just having enough interest from one corporate will drive interest from others yeah. and other LPs, right? Yeah. It has a sort of a snowball effect. Yeah. So you have to really persist and being willing, you know, to understand what are their challenges and what are they uh, trying to do out there and, and adapt your the way you speak and the way you highlight what you're doing to their own needs, right? I want to ask this question in two bits. So the first bit, I'd love for you to give us the elevator pitch of Chameleon, just to make sure everyone listening in is kind of at a common level of understanding. And then ask you a question about something that you just said, which is you've proactively decided not to pursue fund the funds. But on the other hand, you also said that corporates are an important part of your LP makeup and that it is a long dance. And I'd love to hear you explain, uh, you know, okay, why wasn't Fund the Fund something that you guys wanted to pursue? And that's why I think it's important to first understand, okay, what is Chameleon? And then deep dive into that. So Chameleon was born one year ago. It's a joint effort for me, Nuno, and Sungi. We're the three co-founders and partners at the fund. We're already 11 in the team. More than half of the team is the tech and quant team. And that's a lot attached to, I think, one of the key distinctive points that we have as an early stage VC. So we are deploying capital a little bit around the world, between US, Europe, and other parts of the world. We put tickets of one to five million into early stage bets. And we use our 
tech and quant approach to be a lot better and faster in looking at volume in terms of potential companies to invest in. And so we are a lot more outbound driven than most VCs. And so I would say like now already on average, three or four out of five leads that we have in the portfolio on a regular basis are coming out from the outbound models that we have from the quant approach. So I would say that in a nutshell, that's the main difference. Then we have other distinctive elements to it that I can talk about. And maybe jumping into the second question that you had on the LPs, right? Why didn't we decide to go after a fund of funds for one big reason? We already knew the answer to most of the interactions. And so we thought it would be a little bit of waste of time. The main answer that they give you is we put bigger tickets into funds and you're too small and you're an emerging manager come back later with your second fund or third fund. So that was the main reason, right? You know, we were aiming to raise at least 50 million in our first fund. We ended up raising a little bit more than 70 million. Practically speaking, it's not worthwhile trying to reach out to them. Of course, we had several interesting conversations with fund of funds, but it was more on a reactive basis. And I think it's actually the best way of starting to foster the relationship, put a little bit of FOMO into them over time and guaranteeing that they start to have a little bit of curiosity and interest in following what you're doing and then, you know, fostering the relationship from there onwards, right? It's very interesting. That's why I asked the question because we've also had, um, it's not that I don't want to name them, I can't remember, (laughs) but we've also had other guests saying that they've proactively decided not to go after from the funds because of the long decision-making processes, you know, but you went with the corporates, which is kind of, you know, you're willing to go through that, but it's interesting to understand that difference between those perspectives. That's very cool. Alex, so we've been dancing around this quant and tech approach. Yeah. <laughs> we have to deep dive. <laughs> you know, we have to. There's no way around it. So tell us, wh- where should we go? Where should we deep dive? What should we know about this quant and tech strategy from Camille? Sure. So I'll give you some highlights. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into really high detail because that would bore you. And it's also a little bit of our secret sauce. So imagine the following. So as I said, we're investing a lot of time and resources in the quant and tech team, right? And basically what we're doing is the following. It's like having a sort of a startup within the firm with a, you know, a clear roadmap of deploying tons of features, automations, tools, and data models that are deeply embedded in what we do as a VC out there, okay? And so we actually are doing this because we believe that's the only way to properly be successful in early stage VC at scale, okay? To crack the code of how you can have success in this asset class, you have to have scale. And you have to see a lot of companies to invest in the best ones, right? And to provide the right degree of return while managing the underlying risk. And that's why we believe quant nowadays and having the tech approach is the way, right? And so we based the whole thesis around this of creating a chameleon and putting a lot of our management fees to that extent, right? And so while sourcing and screening deal flow, for example, we're you know mapping tons of startups already out there and we're analyzing several criteria from talent to sentiment analysis, product market fit metrics, information regarding their current 
investor pool. And so we fetched tons of data between paid sources and less structured information that we scrape from the internet. And, you know, there's a lot of work put into normalizing data and taking out the noise. I think that's the hardest challenge is, you know, data engineering, a lot of normalizing data and, and making sense out of the data out there. And then we basically have individual scores for each criteria and then a weighted score for each startup that allows us to compare each startup in a relative sense to similar peer group startups. And that allows us to have lists and signals of, you know, which startups we might have interest in reaching out first versus others and doing a lot of outbound on top of that. So that's the first element to it then we are also already working in models that can help us in going deeper into DD and market analysis. And as I already referred to, we've launched the first and early version of our portal, providing extra value add to our portfolio companies, our advisors at hashtag can and our investors by giving them access to data insights that might be relevant for what they're doing as well, right? So that's a little bit what we're doing. I can give you some highlights of the three or four competitive advantages and superpowers that I think we have, right? One, you know, is data. It's a data powerhouse. We're already tracking more than 2 million startups and scoring a bunch of them. The quant approach, you know, we have proprietary AI and quant engines at the core of what we're doing in deal sourcing, DD, and portfolio management. So, you know, I already referred four in every five leads that we're looking at are already coming through the quant approach. Automations, a lot of automations to be a lot more efficient than what we do as a team. So that leads us to have a run rate of startups that we're looking at that is six times bigger than a VC of our size, right? So on average, for example, a VC of our size might look at 1,000 to 1,500 startups on a yearly basis. I think we're going to be a, a lot higher than that, you know, like 6,000 plus. The BI part, right, uh, the business intelligence part through the portal, I think that's really key in having the right relationships in place with our yeah. founders, advisors, and LPs. We'll jump right back into uh, your, your content tech strategy, but I'm just curious to ask the side question, which is when so many of your deals are from an outbound approach and you are at the same time investing globally, but also an emerging team, right? How do you secure access, right, to these deals? Because I guess it's quite likely that they've never heard of Chameleon <laughs> when, when you talk with them, right? So I'm very curious to understand how that happens in your process. Yeah, you know, in a VC, brand equity takes time, tons of time, right? And it can be destroyed in minutes. <laughs> and so we're still not there in terms of brand equity. I think we have a cool name, but it's only a name, <laughs> right? And the cool background as well, but yeah. no, our listeners won't see it, but it's like a completely dark background. Then there's a chameleon on the corner, <laughs> that kind of rainbowish like effect. Super cool. <laughs> thanks, thanks. And so, you know, we're doing it just like any startup reaches out to potential customers. We're doing outbound A-B testing, right? To streamline the whole thing and getting a higher response rate. And then I think, you know, a key part of the whole model that we were building is reaching out to entrepreneurs that are not raising yet, right? A little bit before they might be thinking of raising. And that makes tons of difference, right? If you interact a little bit earlier with them, you're going to foster a relationship that will make the difference between entering in a really cool 
startup with the right ticket, the right evaluation in the right round versus, you know, missing out, right? And I think that's a, a key element of the outbound as well. That's extremely interesting. So does that mean that when you do this kind of preemptive reach out, let's call it like that, to founders, does that mean that you're actually taking an active role and also kind of preparing that fundraising story with for the upcoming round? Yeah, in several cases already, we already did six investments. With uh, several of them, we started talking with them even before they were with a deck and preparing the round. So we ended up helping them in the process and actually led the, or and co-led the round and helped them in the whole effort. And it's a great way to also evaluate talent. If you have a little bit of more time, you're working side by side with the founders. And that's the best way of actually learning how they are and how they interact between themselves and if they're really A players or not, right? It also helps in the evaluation process to engage with them a little bit earlier. So Alex, VCs that do a lot of outreach, outbound outreach, I have a friend who has a good startup who wrote to me, Andreas, I think that one of the topics you should talk to VCs about on your podcast is the fact that I am getting a shitload of automated messages from VCs trying to get me to send them my deck and then they can kind of see if it's something that's interesting to them. He <laughs> finds that highly disrespectful. I'd love to ask you to comment on that. I fully understand what he's saying. We don't ask for the deck, so we ask to meet them and talk with the founders. We're not in the business of, you know, just reaching out to get more information about them and then, you know, using that information. I think that kills your reputation as a VC. You know, we're there to meet people, really cool people, really cool project, and see if it makes sense to partner and work with them. We're doing A-B testing to the outbound, but it's their personal emails that we're sending. Hopefully they don't feel automated nor sort of a canned email, hopefully. And I think that, you know, the early results that we have are proving that, you know, but, you know, automation and being a lot more efficient about managing these interactions is also key, right? Uh, We're trying to do it with a human angle, yeah. but using tech uh, to augment the whole thing, right? But I always say to founders when they say, okay, how should I deal with VCs and so on? You know, I always say one of the things is make sure that they're committing as much as you are, because otherwise, you know, you end up risking your own time, right? And I think that if you guys are asking in that outbound email for a meeting, then you have already made that commitment that if you bother to answer me, then I'll also bother to meet you. Yeah, and I, I do tons of them on a weekly basis, and I'm a partner, right? So we're not only sending our associates, right? Yeah, yeah. Partners are taking first meetings. I think that's not normal in the industry as well, right? I'd love to ask Alex, it's not a secret to many of our loyal listeners, I think that we are working with Affinity, and I'm curious to hear someone like you with your mindset and viewpoint on the tech side of VC. How do you see the different players stack up and where do they come short and and if you use affinity where is it valuable where are they missing and dive a bit into your own thinking around why did you choose to build so much in-house that's a great question you know that in itself could make us talk for one hour or more right (laughs) we also use affinity so we're a good customer of affinity but we're putting a lot on top of Mm -hmm. affinity and actually embedded into affinity as well Mm -hmm. And maybe my biggest complaint with Affinity is they're rather inflexible in allowing to customize things on it. Mm-hmm. We would love a lot more flexibility in adding information into Affinity. It's not easy 
to massively upload information into Affinity. Yeah. I think it can become a lot better. I literally had that conversation just this morning. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. They're the de facto tool out there, right? I've, I've tried others and we're really happy with Affinity. I think if you're a, a real VC out there, you should use Affinity. It's the best one. And we did our research and uh, our homework before choosing Affinity. I should get something out of this. And I will shoot this to the guys afterwards and then they'll be super happy. A bigger discount, right? <laughs> and every listener, if you like Affinity, reach out and then we'll get a promo code and, and we'll make even more money and that kind of thing. So, <laughs> so, yes. Everything that we do is on top of Affinity. So our investment committees, our daily meetings are all on top of Affinity. All the notes are there. But then the more in-depth information, you have links there taking us to our own tech stack, okay? Yeah. So that's how we're doing it. And uh, we would love to put more things on top of Affinity, but it's hard. How do you think about the VC tech stack in general? Where are we missing things? You know, we're hearing more and more VCs, you know, saying, ah, well, we're building this and we're thinking of spinning it out afterwards as actually something that others can use. Uh, how do you think about this? One thing that is really terrible to find is good information on competitors and, and market. When you're analyzing a startup, it's really hard to find a platform that gives you reliable information on the potential competitors that they have. We're developing a lot of things internally to be better in pinpointing, you know, which is the subspace that the startup is addressing and what are the potential competitors that they might have in that subspace. If you go to PitchBook, Crunchbase, they're really terrible on that. I think that that's the worst part of their platforms is yeah. actually giving a competition information, market information. It's too high level or noisy or, or even wrong, right? Yeah. We can't dive too deep, of course, in your software and so on, but just to get a grasp of it. So one of the companies or one of the teams that we're investing in by our syndicates is, is Acrobat Ventures. And part of their model is that they actually took some money up front from the LP base to be able to start building. And that is part of being data-driven, right? Did you do the same thing or, or how did you think about the development costs of actually building something as expansive as what you are? Yeah, so I think it was more of a budget exercise from our side. So yeah. what we did is, you know, from the greed management fees, a big chunk of it is into that. We didn't need to uh, front load anything in that regards. We just ramped up the whole effort based on, you know, what we had in terms of uh, management fees and the fact that we're putting a lot more weight into the quantum tech part, right? Versus mm -hmm. the rest. You know, it's always interesting to hear how teams think about this. I don't know if I'm the only one who's been listening and saying quantum tech, why does he say quant? How does that fit into this? Would you uh, be the clever guy here? <laughs> Imagine the following. So we started last year. We got guys that were doing this from in Goldman Sachs in public markets and quant teams. So PhDs in applied math that know how to do this in another scale, right? Where you have a lot more structured information. And we started building a data lake, right? We're already mapping 2 million startups, enhancing information about those startups on a daily basis the quant kicks in sooner or later. You have a compounding effect. The biggest challenge that you have in early stage is data is a lot more noisy and a lot more unstructured. So you have to do a lot more data engineering on top, right? And have a 
tons of hacks into normalizing, extracting, and transforming the information that you're getting out there. But the quant element you can have sooner or later. It's a matter of time. That's why we call it quantum tech, because they're quants. They've done it previously, and they're going to do it with us. Very mind-blowing for someone with my uh, IQ levels, but I'm sure that a lot of our <laughs> listeners would uh, get a lot more out of this explanation than they would take away. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the cool part where Andres and I strongly believe that most of our listeners are much smarter than us. So I'm sure they, they understand. The other day we had an episode where I, at the end I literally uh, called Andres and I said, I didn't really understand that answer, but <laughs> it sounded so insightful. <laughs> And it was obviously about Web3 and crypto stuff, which <laughs> I'm a noob. Alex, we always end our episodes with a quick fire round. It is a section where we ask you quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Sure. Great. First question, an enterprise, software, and SaaS, what areas excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? Well, I don't know about the others, but uh, we're quite excited about a couple of spaces. That's based on... Uh, Three key trends that we see out there. One is enterprise software is becoming a lot more like consumer software. So the whole focus and customer experience, the power of product-led growth strategies in the B2B world, who decides the use of software and influences its purchase is changing it quite a lot. That is linked to the second trend that we see that out there, that is cloud-based systems, cloud integration are becoming more adopted. So cloud native is becoming a thing. Several impacts in the way you build products, manage them, protect them, you know, in terms of security and link them all together and share data between software out there yep. in the cloud. And then COVID changed the way companies organize their work and how people interact between themselves. So that's why, you know, we are really interested in things related to team management, collaborative tools, better ways of managing product development and tech deployment and the use of data. We've invested uh, in a company that is still in stealth, but developed a connected system for collaboration around the company's plan of record, for example. We're yeah. now in the midst of closing a, another deal that is working and having a better way of helping teams collaborate in hybrid environments. Another key and cool space is uh, e-commerce tools that take full advantage of the underlying data out there and that help you know e-commerce and marketplaces be a lot better in selling things to others. We invest in a company as well in that space. Second question of the quick fire round, which is what are your top tips for emerging VCs fundraising across Europe? I think they're a little bit linked to what I referred previously. So first, focus on working quite well your own story, why you're different, why you're special out there. We feel that 95% of the VCs out there are look the same and use old recipes to investing. So I think that's the main challenge. In our case, it was a lot about being a global player, data-driven, and having a diverse team with uh, different and complementing backgrounds. The second is focus well on the target investors, right? A little bit what I referred as well. Defining, you know, the long list and short list of entities to reach out to. If they're high net worth individuals, what type of people are you looking for? Yeah. Family offices, corporates, what type of corporates? And having a really, you know, a commercial 
approach to it, you know, having a funnel and working the funnel and, and working out the probabilities of closing deals, right? And then the third is persist. Don't give up. It's a patience game, right? What we felt is, you know, we went at it for several months, long months, and and then we had something that tipped the whole thing, right? And sometimes it's an anchor LP that helps others come on board yeah. quite quickly, right? I think you have to manage this with persistence and go at it and show passion and, and show a lot of belief in on what you're doing, yeah. right? Yeah. Absolutely. Third and final question. What can we expect in the future from Alex and Chameleon? <laughs> I don't want to overpromise nor brag, but uh, <laughs> I think the market is going to hear a lot more about us, namely in Europe as well. I believe we're building a very special VC out there. It's a different kind of VC animal, a chameleon that wants to invest in fellow chameleons. So, in you know, in founders that have 360-degree vision that are fast to adapt and take advantage of the changing world out there. And so I think we're a different breed of VC out there, you know, one of the next generation VCs out there. And me personally, I, I hope you're going to hear a lot about me out there and about Chameleon as well, right? Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. It was amazing to have you with us here at the European VC. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot for the kind invite. I really love European VC and being part of the family. So thanks a lot and congrats for all that you guys are doing. Thanks, Alex. And you are part of the family. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at the europeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are? and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.